Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to John uh, chapter 5 as we continue on in our, in our series. This morning's text is a little different as we've been going through John. You know, we've had these kind of action-packed narratives with uh, water into wine and healings. And, and we come to this text this morning, and if, if you have a red-letter Bible, you notice it's almost all in red because it's actually a, a discourse where Jesus is teaching us about himself. It's Christology from the lips of Jesus. So it's a pretty special passage, but it's one you really got to gotta pay attention to and listen to how it follows, like, kind of like an epistle. Now, when I first uh, started preaching back in the uh, late 90s and early uh, 2000s, I, uh, uh, I, I noticed that at that time, the, the faith healers and prosperity preachers on television, if you think back on it, they were kind of at their peak. Uh, they're still going on today, but they were really crushing it back then. And uh, I remember one thing they did is they loved to send out mailers, not emails, actual physical mail out to uh, their constituents and to others trying, to, trying to, to raise money. And I somehow got on a lot of these mailing lists and uh, would receive these. And occasionally I, I kept one if I thought it was kind of special. And uh, I have one here. And this one was special because it came with a little pouch, a little Ziploc little pouch with white crumbly stuff that was kind of, made me kind of nervous. Um, <laughs> but as I looked at it, I realized it was two communion wafers that had kind of crumbled in the mail. Um, but as the, the Reverend Popov says they are actually miracle manna cakes. And this is what it says on the outside of the mailer. Open this envelope now and read the amazing news about your future. You are one in a million chosen by God to experience incredible good fortune, divine favor, joyous relationships, and supernatural prosperity. It's pretty exciting. And, uh, of course, I opened it up and, and read. And apparently, um, this, uh, this preacher had a vision specifically about me and my life and the financial prosperity and blessing that were coming my way. And in this letter, he explains how I could activate this, pro, uh, this prosperity that he has envisioned. And all I had to do was take these Miracle Manna Cakes and send him a double portion of $38, which I guess is $76, or something like that. Um, it was pretty exciting. I thought, this is fantastic. I could use some blessing. But I was a bit disappointed that in his vision of the future, he could not see that I was male, because it started Dear Sister Hughes. Um, I think that Carrie, that name in the database, kind of threw him off. Now, as, uh, as kind of crazy and uh, illegitimate as I think uh, Mr. Popov's vision was, I have to say, I think there's something to this, this vision stuff. Because as I was preparing the text this week and, and, and studying this text, God kind of gave me a vision from this text, a, a vision. I'm going to make a prophecy this week from this text about everybody here. Every one of you, this is for you. The prophecy, I, I predict that every person here will come to believe in Jesus and believe that Jesus 
is Lord and King. Every person here. Now, if you're thinking, I don't know, Carrie, I think you've uh, maybe gone, gone a little crazy, or maybe uh, you think I'm just, I'm just joking, well, uh, let's take a look and, and see where we go with this text. So let's start at, uh, at verse 18. Let's read a little bit. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does. I actually just read verse 19, didn't I? Let's go back to 18, sorry. This is why, Jesus, the, why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. It's kind of an abrupt start. And I think they didn't really know where to break the paragraph because it, it comes right off of last week and, uh, and the text that we saw where Jesus has just done this incredible healing at the pool of Bethesda. If you remember the scene, uh, this pool, actually twin pools, had these springs in them and the water would bubble up. And it had become legend that if you were the first one into the water when the water bubbled up, you would be healed of anything. So you, pe- people from all over hundreds of miles, all the invalids and the sick came and huddled around these pools waiting for the water to bubble and trying to be the first one in to be healed. It was a pretty desperate scene if you picture it. And there was one man there who was particularly pathetic because he was an invalid and he couldn't get to the water. said they'd been there a long time, but when the water bubbled, he couldn't get in there first. So he'd been there a long time. You can imagine him. And Jesus sees him, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. And the man says, yes. And Jesus says to him, chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man got up, took up his bed, and walked. It's, I mean, picture that moment, his atrophied body suddenly standing up, coming to full life and, and renewal and, and health. What a, what a moment. What a joyous moment. But the thing that was amazing was the response of the religious leaders. They were finding no joy in the moment. They were angry. They were too distracted by the fact that Jesus was doing this on the Sabbath, that he was working on the Sabbath, that he's breaking their traditions. He's disrespecting their religious practice. He's ignoring the additions they've added to the law, and they were angry. It was interesting. They couldn't see that actually what Jesus was doing was fulfilling what the Sabbath is all about. If you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 5, they're they're told that on the Sabbath they were to remember how God took them out of their slavery and sure death in Egypt and rescued them and restored them into rest and blessing. And and he's doing that for this man. He's doing what the Sabbath is about. But they're angry because he's breaking the Sabbath. And in fact, it, it turns murderous, their anger, when he answers them. And that answer is in verse 17, the very first verse of our text this morning. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
It seems like a bit of a strange answer, but we need to understand the, the Jewish understanding of God the Father and, and, uh, and the Sabbath and work. You see, according to the rabbinic teaching, technically God never rests. Because, you know, he's holding together the universe. If he, if he stops, you know, what, what happens? But even though he's not resting and he's working, he's not really breaking the Sabbath because God's all-powerful, so it's not really work for him in that sense, right? So God can thus work on the Sabbath without breaking it. And Jesus just says to them, when they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, he says, well, I'm just working like my dad. And uh, they don't like it. In fact, when he says, my father, that's actually very unusual. They usually said, our father or father in heaven. Jesus is making claim to unique personal relationship with the father that allows him sovereign right over the Sabbath. And the implication is clear. They say it. He's making himself equal with God. And they're furious. If anybody ever says to you that Jesus really didn't claim to be God or that he's lesser than God, just say, do you understand that that's why they wanted to kill him? You can look. They understood him to be saying that. They wanted to kill him for it. How can this man, this carpenter from Nazareth, make such an outrageous claim equal to God? Well, as we continue in the text, Jesus explains That's what this whole text, all this read, is about. It's Jesus' answer to them, explaining and affirming his equality with the Father. And he starts in verse 19, which we already read, but we'll read it again. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. You see, the basis, the core of Jesus' argument as to his equality is is the unity of action, his unity of action with the Father. And he gives this analogy. He talks about the Father and the Son, and And their relationship. When I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of my son, uh, Josiah, who's now, you know, 21. uh, But from the time he was a young man, just a little guy, it was very clear that he loved everything work and tools, working with his hands and tools. He just loved it. Just like me. I love doing stuff with my hands and working. And he would... When I would begin to work, he was just a little teeny guy. He would come over and he would stare at me intently and he would watch. He would get so into it that his head would get in the way of my hands. I would be looking around his head trying to work. And then he would go away and he would come back and he had gotten implements that matched what I had, tools. You know, if, if I was spackling a wall with a tray and a putty knife, he would come back with something he would got from the kitchen and a spatula and he would start doing the exact same motions, take a piece of paper and rub the wall like he was sanding. He, he was so detailed about it that he'd even stop in the middle of what he was doing and start blaming his stupid tools for not working properly just imitating his father but the thing is such an analogy of imitation doesn't really go far enough here because jesus is saying something even deeper 
in his union with the Father. What we see demonstrated here is a unity of action that comes from their nature as, as one. Jesus, he says, he says he can do nothing on his own. Nothing alone. It's not that he's powerless. It's not like he can't pick up this rock unless the Father gets the other side, right? That he's not strong. It's that he doesn't do anything. on. When he does it, the Father does it. He's connected in that way. Whatever the Father does, what Jesus does also, their hearts beat as one. It's this loving communion of action. And it's been that way always. Note in verse 17, he says, My Father is working, it's actually has been working until now and, and continuing to work, and I am working. Jesus is saying, look, I've been working with him all along. You see, when God the Father made the universe and placed the stars in the sky and divided the lands, who else was doing it? Jesus was. That's why this book starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and you know, it talks about how everything was created through him. He was working with the Father. When God flooded the earth in the days of Noah, who else was, was doing that? Jesus. When the seas were parted and Pharaoh's armies were crushed, Jesus was in that. And of course, it works the other way around, doesn't it? The works that we generally kind of in our minds attribute to Jesus alone and don't really think about the Father. No, the, the Father was in those as well. Phil Donahue, he was a very uh, early talk show host, one of the first, I think, out of Chicago before Oprah and Ellen and all these guys. And uh, he says in his autobiography uh, why he left the face, uh, left the faith, was because he couldn't understand how an all-knowing, all-loving God could allow his son to be murdered on a cross in order to redeem sins. Couldn't understand that. Richard Dawkins, the atheist apologist right now, says basically the same thing. Hey, how could the father do that? It's cosmic child abuse. See, but they're both missing the connection of the two. These guys don't understand that God the Father experienced the cross in Jesus because the Son can do nothing on his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. God sacrificed himself for us. There was a unity of action even at the cross. So you see, Jesus and the Father's co-action demonstrates their equality, their union. Now there's one simple, straightforward implication of this common action between the Father and Jesus. It, it means one simple, incredible truth. It means that we can actually know God. The God of the universe, the transcendent God, the infinite God, we can we can actually know him because he's entered into our world in his co-actor, Jesus. Think about that for a minute. It's, it's a pretty simple idea. If on the other side of the world, let's say down in Australia, there's a co-actor of, of me, somebody whose heart beats with mine, 
They're not just my doppelganger. They don't just look like me. They act like me. They act in unison with me. What I do, they do. What I say, they say. If you're on the other side of the world by them and you've never met me here, but you know them, you know me. You hear them, you hear me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I don't meet many, many true atheists, many people who actually say, for sure, there is no God. Most people, if you push them, say, well, you know, I mean, there might be a God. I just can't know. There's no way to possibly know. I had, had a neighbor in one of my neighborhoods that I lived in, and I had a good conversation with him, and he basically said that. He said, look, you just can't know. There's no way to possibly know. And then his daughter, his adult daughter, was there, and she said, well, I think there's a God. And I said, oh, and she said, but he's, he's energy. He's just energy, which isn't real high on the knowability scale either, right? Like, how do you know? You see, Jesus acts in unison with the Father so we, we can know. He's become one of us for that reason. If you're seeking spiritually this morning, you want to know God, check out Jesus. Check out his character. Look at his actions. If you want to experience his, God's grace, come to Jesus. Jesus is where we know and understand God. You know, people often say, God is love. How do they know? I mean, if God is a force, how do you, how do you know he's love? If he's out there and you can't really connect, how do you know he's love? But you know what? We know that. Because Jesus has come as co-actor and died on the cross for our sins. We can say, God is love. We know it. We know him. Buddha can't show you that. Muhammad can't show us that. The Pope, Joseph Smith, energy, not even close. Only Jesus acts in unison with the Father. Show us. Jesus is equal and one with God. Now, as we read on in these, in these verses, the, the co-action is demonstrated. He kind of goes on in his discourse here and demonstrates his co-action with the Father in, in two ways. And the first one we see in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Look again at verse 26. The idea is repeated. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus, like the Father, has life. Life-giving power. This would shock a Jewish ear, for it's quite clear in the Old Testament that only God, Yahweh, the Father, gives life. 1 Samuel 2.6 says, The Lord kills Yahweh and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. In Deuteronomy 20, 32, 39, God says, There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive. Only Yahweh. This is a truth that, that the Jews would know very well. And here Jesus stands before them claiming that he, like the Father, can dole out life. And it's not a new idea. He said it in John chapter 1, verse 4, says about him that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Chapter 3, he calls Nicodemus to be born again, promising eternal life. In chapter 4, he offers the Samaritan women living water, his very spirit, that bubbles up to eternal life. And now he just says it outright. I have life. 
and I can give it as I will. And, and it's not just big talk through these passages, right? And we just saw him heal the official's son, restoring his life. The man at the pool, this withered man, restoring him back to, to full health. And he's going to go on to raise people right out of the grave like Lazarus, who's been dead three days. Jesus, like the Father, gives life. And consider the life that he gives. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, present. He gives you life now. See, in the Bible's perspective, by our sin, we're all cut off from God. We're dead. We're cut off from our source spiritually. We're dead. But Jesus can give you life, life not just, you know, that ends in 60, 70, whatever, how many years, maybe five, <laughs> maybe today, but life that passes through judgment into eternity. He offers real eternal life. You can come into eternal life. You can pass from death to life today by believing Jesus and his words. Now, this divine life-giving action that demonstrates unity, Jesus' unity with the Father is complemented further by what we see in verse 22. Look at it with me. This is the other demonstration of his action with the Father. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Look at verse 27. And he has given him, that's Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is not only life giver, but he's judge. It's another prerogative that was clearly only God the Father's in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 1.17 declares, judgment belongs to God, Yahweh. But here, the Father's given it to Jesus. So on the last day and final judgment, everybody will stand before Jesus. So when you kind of put it all together, it's a pretty strong case for Jesus' equality with the Father. He's acted with God from the beginning, he says, of all things. And he will stand at the end as the judge of all things. From creation to final judgment, from eternity to eternity, he is one in action with the Father. And now he stands in the middle offering life. That's God. So the question is, what, what do we do with this? What does this mean? How, how are the people who were listening to Jesus supposed to respond? What does Jesus expect of them? What does he expect of us? Well, there's two things that we see in this text that I think are pretty clear with kind of the, the, the way they're repeated. And the first one is simply honor. We are to honor Jesus. You see, in the immediate situation, the problem is, is they are not honoring Jesus. This is why the whole discourse takes place. The religious leaders do not, you know, they, they don't see him as God. They see him as much less. Maybe a teacher. Maybe just a blasphemer. And so according to verse 22, God passes the sole responsibility of judgment over to Jesus to kind of remedy the situation. 
Do you see that? Look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He says, oh, you don't want to honor my son? Well, he's going to be your judge. You will honor him. Now, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, do we, do we have that, do we dishonor Jesus today? Do we kind of shrink him down to a small J Jesus where he's not? And, 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 and you look at the world and you think, well, of course, you know, people just go, well, who's Jesus? Oh, he's a teacher maybe. He's a prophet maybe. Um, maybe he's not even real. Maybe, I, mean, I think he was just a man that you know, had some good ideas, but he was crushed by kind of the wheels of history. There's whole Christian denominations that see him as kind of divine, but kind of lesser than the Father, not quite there. They dishonor Jesus. But as I was thinking, I was thinking, that's kind of out there. What about, what about us? What about me? Do I, do I hold Jesus in his full honor? And I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know what? Probably not. Oftentimes I don't. I mean, I love to think of him as as my friend and my, my shepherd and my counselor and the lover of my soul, my forgiver. Those are wonderful things, and that's all true, but that's only part of the picture. I don't so much picture him as my judge. You don't see that in the stained glass windows, right? You don't see that in the Sunday school curriculums, this picture of Jesus the judge. I, I remember I was teaching... Uh, Matthew 3, to, uh, to a Sunday school class once of, ki- of children. And uh, it's where John the Baptist is warning the, the Jewish religious leaders about having unrepentant hearts that don't bear fruit, about being a bunch of fakes and on the inside not, not real. And he's calling them out. And he says, you better be careful because one who's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand you know, the winnowing fork where they would throw the wheat in the air and the chafe would separate. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chafe. He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying he's coming. And he knows the truth about your hearts. And the chafe is going to burn in the fire. He's going to judge. I mean, it's a tough passage. And I, I went to one of the artists in our church, Tom Bowman, who's passed away. Many of you remember his art. Some of you have it on his walls. And I asked him, I said, would you draw me a picture of Jesus here? And he, he did Colored pencil art that was amazing, looks like photographs. He drew this picture of, of Jesus. And I was teaching Sunday school class, and when I got to that part, I held up the picture. I said, who's this? And there was this picture of Jesus, mid-stride, winnowing fork in his hand, determination on his face. And they all just stared at it. I said, who is this? They didn't know who it was, which is strange in Sunday school class because the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> And I, and I think they were staring at it, and they were like, I think it's Jesus, but uh, where's the serene look and the lamb on his shoulders and the, you know, the gentle... They weren't sure what to say. How could that be? See, it's easy to not be really fully honoring Jesus. And the question for all of us is, do we see him as our judge, the giver of life? Now, Jesus expects something else here. It really kind of, in a sense, comes before honor. Yes, sir, to honor him. But there's something else that 
that we see repeated in this text as a response. It's in a couple verses, several times. Look at verse 24 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Look at verse 25. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. You see, first and foremost, I think the challenge that Jesus is giving here when he's claiming this is, you need to hear. You need to hear me. And and hearing here has a couple aspects to it. It's not just, you know, hear me, like, oh, you heard it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a hearing that, that is responsive. It's a hearing that believes. Look at verse 24 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He hears and believes. In fact, in the Greek, it's kind of hears, believes. Is the idea, like a slash between them, right? This is, it's the same idea. It's a hearing that actually acts. Like when we say to people, you're not hearing me. You know, like, you're listening, but you're not. He you needs to hear him. In the previous chapters, the official with the dying son, it says that he, he heard Jesus and he believed his words. The cripple by the pool. Jesus says, get up. And he believed. He got up. He heard his words. He believed. This is Jesus' word to you and me that we may have life. We are supposed to hear it. Secondly, the hearing here is urgent, isn't it? It's not just a, a believing, real hearing. It's an urgent, has an urgency. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the, the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's come and the time is now. It's here to listen to him and to hear and believe and to receive life. He's come. He offers life to our dead souls. The opportunity is on the table now. Don't put it off. You can reject him. You can say, I don't want to hear that. I'm not interested in hearing that. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't hear that. But notice the last point about his hearing. Look at verse 28. Let's read these again. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming. The hour had come when he was here, but now an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you see what hearing is there? It's inevitable. All will hear. You, you may think that, that hearing and believing in Jesus is not for you. But the fact is, one day Jesus is going to come calling. And all will hear, even those in the grave. He's going to say, like he said to that cripple, get up. And everybody's going to get up. And as sure as that cripple stood up by the pool, we will rise and we will stand before him. It says either in life, to receive life, or judgment, 
So you see where I get my prediction from? Everybody's going to come to hear. They're going to come to believe that he is judge and Lord. You're going to know for sure. And you're going to believe. All will hear his voice and obey. The question for all of us is whether we're going to hear now and believe and receive life or we're going to, whether we're going to hear later when it's too late and we receive judgment. Look at verse 24 again. Let's just end there. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Hear Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father, we know that in the end we need you to open our ears. We have gone deaf by our own sin, and we don't want to listen. We ask that you would open our ears to hear, that we may know your son and know you, that we may honor him as our life giver and judge, that we may receive his pardon and receive his life, his life at the cross that was given for ours that we may have eternal life. Pray these things in his name. Amen.